You know that 800,000 people are widowed every single year, but even more startling is that 700,000 of those people are women. The death of a spouse is listed as the number one stressor that people can experience. It is considered one of life's most devastating events. So imagine the pain that so many people are experiencing even just in one year. I think what's even more startling to me is that the average age of a widow is 55. And 75% of women will experience widowhood by the time they're 56. Because if you're like me, you probably think of widows as really elderly, and, um, but it's not true. A lot of young women are experiencing this devastating event. And did you know that it is possible to die of a broken heart? Statistics show that widows have a 30% elevated risk of dying within six months after their spouse. So this is a profound pain and a profound anguish. And I'm Sharon Betters, and I am so glad that you're listening to this Help and Hope podcast produced by Market Ministries, because we want to offer you encouragement if you are a widow or if you love someone who um, has been widowed or is a widower, not only with help for them, but help for you to know how to come alongside of them and how to help them in this journey. And so today I have with me my dear friend, Sherry Kendrick. Sherry Kendrick's husband died after a battle with cancer. And so we're taking those big numbers down to one woman and learning about her journey into widowhood and how she's making out with that devastating loss. So Sherry, welcome. Thank you. Well, I appreciate so much and I know our listeners are appreciating so much that you are willing to go back into your own pain in order to offer help and hope to others. And so before we get into that really dark period in your life, tell us a little bit about your family and where you are right now. Well, I live in Naples, Florida and I am the children's director at Covenant Church of Naples. And I've been in that position for the last 10 years. I have three children. They're all grown and adults. And I have one granddaughter, Evie, who is the light of my eye. Well, Chuck and I have known you and Mike for a long time. And so when we heard about Mike's diagnosis and prognosis, it was devastating to us as your friends. Tell us what happened. In January of 2013, Mike was diagnosed with internal melanoma with no external site. And that is an extremely rare diagnosis. Most melanoma has some external site so that you have a little bit of time to know that it's there. But Mike's cancer was growing what they call metabolically. And he was given maybe six to nine months to live, definitely no more than a year from our local oncologist. That oncologist sent us to Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, and we met with the team there who prescribed the new immunotherapy drugs that you hear about on TV now. Um, Mike took not those that you hear about, but a grandfather drug of those, and was successful in the treatment of that and the cancer actually started dying. But as with any experimental drug, there are side effects that you can experience. And Mike actually developed a drug-induced pulmonary fibrosis after the cancer was gone from the drugs. And he died in February of 2018 
from that pulmonary fibrosis. You are so fresh in your journey. And we've talked a lot about intentional grieving or grieving intentionally. And I know that there are people who would say, those two words don't go together. How, how in the world can you say that you grieve intentionally? But for you, that has been your quest. And I'm wondering if knowing that Mike was dying, if somehow that was able to equip you for grieving so intentionally? I think so. Um, And I've had other people tell me that I'm grieving intentionally. The counselor that I saw, our congregational pastor here now, they talked to me about how intentional I've been in that. And I think it comes from the fact that Mike was a congregational care pastor and he knew about grieving. He knew about dying. And he and I just had a lot of conversations before his death about how things were going to look for me when he wasn't with me. And we we did some planning, some other planning we didn't do, but it was a conversation that he and I could have pretty pretty openly with each other. And there were just a lot of nights in those five years where I couldn't sleep. And I would think, what's this gonna look like when I don't have Mike Lane here with me and when I'm doing life day to day without him? So I had a lot of time to think about it And I think, almost think more about what I didn't want it to be as much as what I've wanted it to be. How old were you when Mike died? I was 57. So you are, you're a proof of that statistic. Women are losing their husbands when they're young. So even though you and Mike had the opportunity to talk, so many of us don't even want to talk about that. We don't want to think about what if something happens to our spouse. And yet just listening to you, Sherry, and observing you, I can see how critically important it is for us to be realistic and to talk through these these major issues. And the other thing I'm so grateful for is that we have a record of uh, Mike and you talking about hope and terminal cancer at the Mark Inc. site at markinc.org. This is before uh, Mike's death, obviously, but I, I just remember his voice being so soothing and encouraging and just surrendered to God's purposes. So Sherry, how would you describe your grieving process? What role has God's word played in this journey for you? Well, not too long after Mike died, I was doing Bible reading plan and ended up in the Psalms and just happened one day to read Psalm 16. And it was like it jumped out at me off the page. And I sort of stopped my Bible reading for a little bit and spent some time just delving into Psalm 16. There was a particular line in it that drew my attention, and that line was that the Lord drew David's boundary lines in pleasant places. And it was it was just something I felt like at that point in time that God was doing for me, even in the midst of deep grieving, that the lines the Lord had put around me, the things he had put in my life that were sort of hemming and fencing me in were pleasant, were pleasant places. And so I started delving into the rest of the psalm. And the biggest part of it is that David talks about God being our chosen portion, that he didn't run after the idols of the day, and he didn't run after the other gods, that he chose to run after God even in the midst of trouble. And that has just really spoken to me that in the darkness, that running after God rather than 
running after the things that I could as I'm grieving, like just having a spirit of unsettledness or having a spirit of anger or having a spirit of depression. Those things could happen and they would be idols I would be running after rather than trusting in God as my chosen portion and understanding that choosing him as my chosen portion helps me find those boundary lines that lead to the pleasant places that I can rest in. So Psalm 16 was just really special to me. And I've lived in that Psalm pretty much for a year. When we lost our son, Mark, uh, he was 16 years old and he was in a fatal car accident with his friend, Kelly. And, you know, grief, I, I didn't think I would be able to survive those days. And I'm thankful for the faithfulness of friends and for God's word and, and for the people who said you need to lean into the pain and not try to run away from it. And I think you've kind of touched on that, but how have you leaned into the pain? Well, I was advised by several spiritual mothers in my world to lean into the grief, to not ignore it. Um, So I did. As the waves would come, I would lean into the pain and kind of see what about it was bothering me, what was tweaking me. I remember one particular Sunday that my heart was just breaking. We were taking communion. Mike was not standing up there giving out communion. It just was breaking my heart. And I found myself at the end of the service um, on the front pew, just crying out to my father, you know, that I missed my husband and that I wanted to see my pastor husband and know him there, but that wasn't going to happen. So I leaned into it and allowed the Lord to comfort me instead. We have a staff retreat every year. Mike and I were both on staff here at Covenant. The day we left to go on the first staff retreat after Mike died, I bawled the entire way to the staff retreat. I I caught it. I cried in the car all the way up and I got there and um, our staff greeted me and knew I'd been crying. It was obvious I'd been crying. And they had given me my bedroom by myself. I didn't have to share it with a bunch of other girls that weekend. But I just leaned into it. I went and did it anyway, just like I went to worship anyway. But I would lean into it and just bawl. In that, the Lord has relieved some of the pain. I've also found that it's the theology that undergirds me in the leaning into the pain, that I can lean in and feel all of that pain, but at the same time know that God is sovereign and that this was his best plan for Mike. Mike is safe and doing doing perfectly fine in heaven and that the Lord is obviously taking care of me here where I, I have found my boundary lines are drawn in present places. I just miss Mike. But God's sovereignty has comforted me. My other favorite theological term is God's steadfast love. I have seen his steadfast love on every day. I look for it. I look to find it in each day in this year of grieving. One day it was a double rainbow as I was just really sad. And the rain came that afternoon and matched my mood. And I walked outside and there was a double rainbow. And I thought, Okay, Lord, that's my happy for today, the sign of your promise that you will never leave me and you will never forsake me. Your steadfast love is true. And even though I'm sad today, those promises are still true. 
So the theology has helped me knowing about God and who God is and understanding the deep truths about God. I can feel all the pain and lean into the grief and at the same time be held safe and firm in his loving care. That reminds me of the scripture in Isaiah 45 where God promises, I will give you treasures in darkness, riches stored in secret places so that you will know I am the Lord your God, the one who calls you by name. And that passage, actually God gave it to me when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, along with his mercies are new every morning. And I felt like he was saying, they're there. Those blessings are there. You just need to open your hands and your eyes to be willing to receive them. And, And it's all about not to make us better, but to help turn our hearts toward him. That's a hard place to get to sometimes because really what we want is for him to fix it. We want everything back that we lost. And yet looking for those treasures helps us to stay focused on purpose and and the meaning that God has for us now in our lives. So, you know, you've mentioned a little bit about some of your struggles, but what would you say were some of the most difficult struggles for you and still are? I mean, a year is nothing Mm -hmm. uh, in your journey. It's just amazing that you're able to, to share in such an articulate way. So what are some of the hardest places and how about even today? What are some of those struggles for you? In the beginning, I was most worried about depression, a little bit of anxiety because I have a tendency toward depression, a little bit of family history there, and I've dealt with depression before, and it kind of comes and goes with me, but it's definitely situational. And I was afraid initially that I would be dealing with a significant amount of depression. So just a little bit before Mike died, I actually started my antidepressant again, and that was helpful and holding me and actually allowing me to lean into the grief and do the grieving without necessarily fighting the depression. Um, But it was there. There were days that I did not want to get out of bed. There were days that sleeping 12 to 15 hours a day was the thing I did. So that's my default. My default is to go to my bed, cover up my head and um, stay with my big soft pillow and just stay there. That's, that's my default. I have to, I have to work at making myself not do that. The other thing is just fuzzy brain. I've had a very, very fuzzy brain the whole year needed lots of lists to make sure that I'm not forgetting things, needed other people to give me information in black and white rather than just tell me I I can't hold information, I can't hold names. So I've, I've dealt with that quite a bit. Later, that was initially in the last oh three to four months, since Christmas particularly, and it's May now, I've really dealt with jealousy. I've struggled with being jealous of other women who have their husbands still here with pictures of families that are complete, grandparents with grandchildren pictures, things that I know I won't have again. I've, I've really had to work at not having a root of bitterness in my heart and being jealous and wanting good for other people instead of wanting it for myself. I've had to deal with uh, really feeling the missing of Mike's companionship and his headship in the last little bit. The less numb I am and the more I'm kind of returning to life, I miss Mike's guidance with me. I I could do a seminar for young couples on the joys of headship right now because I've just missed Mike's loving care of me and guidance of me to say yes and no to things, you know, because I can freely hallucinate and get myself into big trouble. And I like doing things and have these grandiose ideas and 
he would calm them down and make sure that I had my ducks in a row before I would go do anything totally crazy. So I've missed that. When we were in our first year, people ahead of us in the journey had cautioned us to recognize that the second year was going to be worse than the first. We couldn't even imagine it. How in the world could it be worse? Have you found that to be true in some ways? I found it to be different. It's worse in the sense that you're not as numb and that there's more of a reality to it, that this is going to become the norm and that they're really not coming back and that you've got to figure out what life looks like for you now. And I'm sort of right there right now. I'm at that point where I'm not looking back as much as I'm looking forward and realizing that I'm going forward without Mike and this is the way it's going to be. And there's a heart in that. You know, I... I wanted to travel with Mike. I wanted to do grandparenting with Mike. And I'm looking forward at all those things. And that's not going to be. And that is hard. I'm not finding some of the events as hard. Like I went on the staff retreat this year without a lot of difficulty or not as much difficulty. I'm not sure what the holidays will bring this time. So I think it's just still leaning into it. I actually don't expect how I feel right now to change a whole lot for a while. I think it's going to be this way and that I just have to live each day faithfully before the Lord. And when the grief comes, just sit still in it and let the Lord speak into it and and know it and, and then get up and move again. A friend sent me a card and it said, God's grace is not an anesthetic. And that actually comforted me so much because I wanted to be faithful to him. But I had all this grief and this sorrow and these questions and struggles and challenges. And, you know, there is a a prosperity gospel out there that leads people to believe the lie that if you have enough faith, then everything is going to work out well. And, And even though you don't think you believe it, I think when hard times happen, you realize you need to re-examine some of those things. And so I think there's great comfort in saying, you know, God's grace is not an anesthetic, but God's grace is enough. And so when you're having those hard places, like you talked about his love, his everlasting love, that doesn't change. Even Mm -hmm. when you're just so broken, you're not sure how to view the next day without your husband. So that loneliness that Mm -hmm. you're experiencing, I can imagine. Well, what do you think has really helped you practically with these struggles? You've named them and you're dealing with them and you've talked a little bit about how you're dealing with them, but what are some of the other ways that you were intentional about in putting into place? The first thing I put into place before Mike died was seeing my doctor and talking to her about what was coming down and what we were expecting and asking her to give me some baselines and us do the medicine. And so I did that ahead of time, partly so that I would be able to take care of Mike as his health declined. The Lord graciously allowed Mike to die very differently than we expected. We expected the whole hospital bed, oxygen at home, uh, full-time hospice kind of thing. And in the end, Mike actually just laid down and the Lord took him home. He laid down to rest and his heart stopped and he went home. But the last six months I had done quite a bit of making sure he got to where he needed to do because he just didn't have enough air to do all of that. So seeing that medical professional ahead of time was just a really smart thing to do to care for myself, but also to allow me to care for him. 
So that's continued. And then the second thing that I did after Mike died, I was really afraid that I would lay down in my bed and pull my covers up over my head and not get out. I was really, really afraid I would do that. And so uh, were my family members, my children and my sister and, and close friends. And so we actually set up an accountability system around me. Um, there was somebody that I was supposed to report to by a certain time of the morning. And if I wasn't there or haven't checked in, uh, they were supposed to come to my house and find me and to make sure I put my feet on the bed or on the floor. The rule was that I had to get up and go to work for at least four hours, even if I just sat there, but would get up and go. And then I could go home and go back to bed if I needed to do that at that point. And it worked. I, because I had that accountability around me, I only had two really, really, really bad mornings where I couldn't get up. And uh, I made myself get up and get to the shower eventually, but they were late mornings. It was good. It was good to have that kind of accountability around me. And so I was thankful, thankful for that. I also saw our church counselor. Our church offers six weeks of free counseling for anybody who's experienced a, a death in their family. And so I took advantage of that and she and I met and I just let her ask me questions and sort of check on me, offer suggestions of what I might need to do differently than I was doing, let her particularly monitor the depression factor for me. So that was helpful. And then my faith community, I refused to exit from it. I bawled in church. I cried and cried and cried. And not the kind of just neat crying where you have little tears going down your face. I'm talking the kind that embarrasses you to death kind of crying. I remember a particular Sunday morning, again, communion set me off. It just always did. And I'm a children's director, so I don't always get to sit. And I, I had finished up with what I needed to do and had gone back into the service. And there weren't a lot of seats left. And I sat down beside one of the fathers of one of my children in our children's ministry. And he's like, Mr. Man. Okay. He's like, Mr. Tough guy kind of thing. And I sat down beside him because it was the only seat. And I listened to the sermon and I started crying in the sermon. I was trying not to, you know, just weep and wail. And cause he was sitting beside of me and um, Trent got to the communion part. My pastor got to the communion part and we started the music at communion and I just heaved, I just heaved, cried. And his arm, bless his heart, his arm came up and around my shoulder and he patted me. And after the service, he gave me a hug before he left. And after the service, I got a text message from his wife that said, you can sit with us and cry anytime you want to. I'm thankful for that faith community, even tough guys that will reach out and show compassion and so mercy to those who weep. And I just, I needed worship. And so I went to worship and I cried in worship and it was part of the healing process for me. So my faith community, accountability from friends, med- I just did it all. I all that around. And then just in this last little bit, I've done the 12 weeks of grief share. And I have found that to be helpful as well. We didn't offer it until recently, the last just little bit, I think it started in January. And I just finished it and it was good for me. It, it was, the videos were particularly good for me to watch and sort of check in on myself and see where I am still working on some things and uh, particularly the jealousy factor. It talked about that and that was good for me about moving forward because that's kind of where I am. And it talked about that, just good suggestions. 
So grief share was good for me. And grief share, uh, for those of you who are listening, if you just Google it, uh, you'll find it. Uh, you'll find locations, and hopefully, you would find one close to you. There are many churches and organizations that sponsor it, and I think one of the advantages is what Sherry just said that you realize you're not weird. You realize that you're normal in in so many of the feelings and the struggles that you have. And so, Sherry. You've talked a lot about your faith, but is there something specific in the way that your faith has helped you in your grief? Well, in Psalm 16, that last line of it, it talks about that God makes known to us the path of life, and in His presence there is fullness of joy, and at His right hand are pleasures evermore. And that's not a joy that goes, yay, my husband died. That's not that kind of joy. It is that quiet, still joy in my heart that tells me that my Heavenly Father loves me and loved Mike and that that this is His plan for me and it was His plan for Mike and that I can find joy in my relationship with Him and find pleasures in the fact that Mike and I are going to be in heaven together. And so for me, I've done all those basic Christian disciplines. I've worshipped. I've made sure I've worshipped this year. I have not run from worship. I let the word, the preached word, fall deeply into my heart. I've continued to study the word, make sure I'm in a Bible study. Um, lately, I've been listening to uh, version in the car and go through books like that, just listening to them as I go from place to place to keep my mind on the word. I've enjoyed doing that. That's been good for me. Praying for myself, praying for my children as we grieve. Asking my church family to continue to pray for me, giving them very specific examples of how to pray for me, and allowing the church family to kind of speak into it. I say yes when they want to invite me over for dinner. I say yes when they want to go out for lunch. I limit myself to two to three nights a week, but I schedule things so that I'm with the Lord's people and I'm allowing them to feel that loneliness rather than just feeling like I'm by myself. I am not by myself. I belong in a church family, and I am part of that church family, and they are caring for me well. And in addition to that, I get to care for a whole bunch of little kiddos every week, and they speak into my grief quite well, and they love me quite well. And so those are my pleasant places. Those are my pleasant lines that the Lord has drawn for me, even as I cry at night or cry in the car, I find that that those spiritual disciplines have helped speak into the grief in a way that has allowed me to grieve, but to grieve with hope and in a sense, grieve with joy because I know where Mike is and I know who I am. Sherry, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your honesty and your transparency and the, the great truths that you have shared. And I know that God is going to use your story and Mike's story to uh, touch so many hearts and to encourage those who are so broken that they feel hopeless and despairing. And so as we kind of wrap up our time uh, with one another, are there any last words that you would say, just imagine that you're speaking to a new widow, what words of encouragement and hope could you give her in just a couple of minutes? I think the biggest thing 
that I've kind of wrestled through that I think is a good scriptural principle that I'm not sure that our world speaks into as well is the one on identity. I've had so many sweet friends who have lost their husbands tell me they feel torn in two. And I get that. I mean, I get the loss of companionship. I get the loss of the person who's eating dinner with you. I get the loss of that person who drives places with you. That, that's where I'm dealing with some of that jealousy that what will never be again. But as I've worked through it, my purpose and my identity is not found in Mike. I love him and I love him now, even though he's in heaven and I'm not. And I loved him with all my heart. But he's not who made my identity. He was my husband, and that's a role. And he loved me very well. And I loved being Mike Kendrick's wife. I love being a pastor's wife. And I have not loved the word widowed pastor's wife. I have not enjoyed that title, okay? But at the end of the day, my identity is found in Jesus Christ and who I am as his child. And so even with Mike in heaven and me here, that identity has not changed. And I think that's important for widows or widowers to know that your identity and your purpose is not found in that person who's now gone, even as much as you love them. Your role has changed. You know, you're, you're, you're widowed or a widower now, but your identity is not. If you know Jesus as your Savior, He is indeed your Savior and your Lord. And you are his child. And your purpose every day is still to get up and give him honor and glory in this day. And some days for me, that's me being very still and curled up and crying with a tissue. That that gives him glory as I grieve. Grief and the brokenness that comes with grief. There's nothing wrong with that. And on other days, it means that I'm playing with 60 kids in a room and while their parents are at a seminar or a conference. And I'm serving pizza and water bottles and teaching them about forgiveness. I mean, on some days, that's what it means. But my everyday purpose and my everyday identity, I know who I am. And you can know who you are because of who we are in Jesus, not because of the loss we've experienced. The loss is real and needs to be grieved, but it doesn't determine who I am. Sherry, thank you so much for such wise and encouraging words. And I'm Sharon Betters, and you have been listening to a Help and Hope resource that is produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. And my guest today has been Sherry Kendrick, and our topic has been intentional grieving. And if you have been touched by this, I know that there are more stories that you can access at markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org. All of our resources are free, and our vision is to offer help and hope to hurting people and each one of our stories address some of the most painful crises that human beings can experience. And yet each one is a voice of encouragement and redemption. We can offer these resources free of charge because so many people believe in our vision and share our vision and are partnering with us by underwriting financially the cost because even though they're free, you know, they're not free to produce. And so if you've been touched by this story or any of our resources, would you consider giving to Mark Inc. and helping us to continue to produce these resources that offer help and hope? You can go to markinc.org, that's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org, where you can safely give. So thank you so much for listening.